0: All right, I would love somebody to be able to read Titus 2, the um, whole chapter. It's not that long. And uh, pick up where we were last time.
1: You must teach
2: what is in accord with sound doctrine, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women be reverent in the way they live not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine but to teach what is good and they can train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech which cannot be condemned so that even those who oppose you may be ashamed because there's nothing bad they can say about us teach the slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them not to talk back to them And not to steal with them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they make the teaching about the word of God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to ransom us, redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people who are as very young, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you ought to teach. Encourage and refute with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Well done. Um, All right, so a regular theme in uh, this book seems to be the role of good works, an openly virtuous life that flows from the gospel uh, being essential to evangelism, essential to the success of the gospel in a community. In other words, that the surrounding watching world is seeing the effect of the grace in Christians' lives and are evaluating Christianity as a result. And so there are a number of examples here where the word of God is uh, the reputation of the word of God is hanging in the balance based on how uh, Christians are, do- are doing. So you got this in, in verse uh, five with, you know, uh, the older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands and their children and to be busy at home and all that, dot, 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 uh, so that no one will malign the word of God. You see that? So no one will speak negatively of the Word of God. Um, so that's negative, but speaking positively, they'll speak well of the Word of God. The, the gospel has a good effect on um, people's behavior. And then you get the same thing with the master-slave, uh, uh, or sorry, in verse 8, um, uh, he, he talks about uh, Titus setting an example. We'll get to that, God willing, today. But so that um, those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad they can say about us. So again, you've got this idea of a hostile audience viewing Christians from the outside, ready to make a very negative judgment about it. And Paul's saying, let's, let's take that right out from under them. Let's, let's knock the pillars right out from under their argument by, by good works, by living such a good life that they can't say anything about it. Same thing with the slave section. The slaves um, should behave in a certain way so that in everything they will make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. Um, You know, this goes right on to the end. I went ahead and wrote the uh, Titus 3 question sheets. I don't think we're going to get to it today. But at any rate, who knows? Um, But uh, in verse uh, 14 of chapter 3, our people must learn to devote themselves uh, to doing what is good. All right? So it just seems to be a regular pattern in Titus is do good works so that the gospel will be attractive to people. So any comments on that, on the link between Christian behavior, good works, and the reputation of Christ and of the gospel?
1: You also said it in 3A, you know,
2: that they must be. Go ahead and read it.
0: Since I bled over into chapter three, so all things fair game here. Go ahead, chapter three. So so I want to stress these things
2: so that those uh, who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves uh, to doing what's
0: good. Okay, so again, that consistent pattern of virtuous living, good works, for the sake of the gospel. So any other thoughts on this, on the link between our behavior? Go ahead.
3: We're saying a lot about good works, and I wonder if there's a risk that the non-Christian looks in and says, oh, salvation comes through good works.
0: Is there that risk? Any chance that they'll think that that's how salvation comes? Yeah, totally. Yes, of course. There's every chance of that that's going to happen. Any thoughts on that? Well, stop it's it's emphasizing works to work. mm-hmm. and not moving to
4: to faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our discussion is
3: going to be
0: Yeah. If you look at at, I um, mean, we'll get to it. But I go to chapter three um, and verse four and five. Um, he says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, verse 5, 3 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So it's very, very clear that genuine Christianity, the order is justification by faith alone apart from works, resulting in a lifetime of good works. And that the good works validate the saving faith. If there are no works there is no faith that's james chapter 2. without works faith is dead but if there's genuine faith there's going to be that work but but there's no forgiveness of sins there's no reconciliation with god there's no justification by works that's impossible yes
3: um, it's interesting that we're talking about this because um, this is something that we talked about monday night mm-hmm. and uh, i found it interesting because uh, we also talked about the good works versus uh, bearing fruit um, and the fruits of your labor and what you do, so um, I gave an answer for that. And uh, uh, I, sh- I can share it. It says must have God the Father on your side and Jesus must be the centerpiece of your life. Amen. And it must be fruitful when it happens. Thank you. you know, it seems like Jesus is very
5: clearly delineated as a king. God intends to fix the sin problem in Genesis With a king, and most kings come in and they, you know, very authoritatively exert their way. They they overpower, they slaughter, they conquer, they do those things. And Christ as a king basically came in and says, you know, I'm not going to assault you or annihilate you that way. I'm going to come in and die for you. I'm going to come in and redeem you from the evil that you've done. And He wants us to represent Him by Doing the same thing, you know. You you have rights, but give up your rights for others, and and uh, and act like I act, and, and that is a is so contrary to the world, but it so um, wonderfully reflects his personality and the love that he shared to to come and redeem us rather than slaughter us.
0: Amen. Yeah, the sequence is vital, though. Um, our sins are forgiven at the very beginning of the Christian life by simple faith and not by works Clearest picture this always will be the thief on the cross who could not do good works his life was over he hadn't done good works but he's still going to heaven based on simple faith in Christ but most of us don't die the moment we come to Christ like the thief on the cross did Um, we live many years and the purpose of that life is good works Uh, We are to do those good works. We're to be zealous, it says here in this book, for good works in Titus. Um, But not as the basis of our relationship with God, not as the basis of our forgiveness, not at all. But the Lord is willing to tie his reputation in the world to the behavior of his Christians. And so he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. He said that to Christians. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. It's an overt claim that we should do a bunch of good works so that everyone can see them. And then a few verses later, he said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. It's like, now I'm confused, all right? <laughs> but there is a way to harmonize it. It's all got to do with your motive. If your motive is, I want to make God appear glorious, that's a good motive. If your motive is, I want to appear righteous before others, that's a bad motive. I think, it's, I think we can figure that out. But there's definitely a, a shining of those good works. All right. What you're sharing, Pastor
3: Davis, Galatians one, I mean, Colossians 1.10 talks about that.
0: Okay, well, good. All right, let's. Let we we were in the middle of the section. Go ahead, Greg. The, um, it strikes me the
4: the converse of that is very sobering. That if we claim to be uh, Christians, if we claim to be followers of Christ, and live in a way that is dishonoring to Him, mm-hmm. it's uh, um, it really harms His reputation in the
0: world. Yeah. Well, on Sunday I'm going to preach. Um, Uh, from mark 14 jesus predicted speaking to his apostles not judas but the 11 this very night you will all fall away on account of me for it is written i'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered but after i've risen i'll go ahead of you into galilee that's a bad moment right there all 11 of his heroic courageous apostles running for their lives Preferring to save their lives rather than stay with their best friend at his hour of need. How does that look? Not good. <laughs> Not good. And yet they were the foundation, the human foundation of the church. On this rock, I'll build my church, you know. But there, that was a bad night for all of them, especially Peter. So, you know, it's just amazing how God is willing to use people like us. You know, it's, it's true. Our, our, our behavior in the world does affect Christ's reputation. All right. So last time we talked about older women. And now we're into the younger men section. Remember, there's that two-by-two two matrix of gender and age. Old men, old women, o- uh, younger men, younger women. Um, so we talked last time, older, older women have a teaching role in the church uh, in this passage, and that is to teach who? Who should older women be focused on teaching? Young women. Younger women. To the end that they would um, respect their husbands, love them, submit to them, that they should love their children, that they should set up a well-ordered, godly Christian home.
2: And repetitive, it was training them more than just teaching.
0: Right, and, and central to all this uh, was the value of a well-ordered Christian home uh, for which the woman is responsible for a lot of the details, the day-to-day operation of it. That's uh, her focus and her task, and she needs to be really good at it. And she, uh, if she is, then no one will malign the word of God, it says. So the word of God can be held in honor. Now, the greatest impact she's going to have, um, that women have, is the training of the young children in the gospel itself. As we see that in um, um, in Second Timothy, where uh, Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice had poured the truth of the, the Jewish version of the gospel. This is before... You know, before the new testament but they you know everything you need for salvation is there jesus taught accurately of the messiah and of salvation from that and they that that sincere faith paul says first lived in your grandmother lois and your mother eunice and i'm persuaded now lives in you also he said that so there's that role modeling that godly a godly mother can do pouring the gospel he says how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So there it is, beautiful. All right. So that's the older older uh, women. Now we get to young men. Uh, verse six and seven. Similarly, encourage, exhort the young men to be self-controlled. And then um, it says to Titus, in everything, Titus, and it's implied there, set them an example by doing what is good, etc. All right, so he really only gives one form of instruction to young men. What is it?
4: Self-control.
0: Be self-controlled. Okay, it's like, that's it. That's what you got for young men. All right, why that? Of all the like, I'm going to say one thing to this to the young men in the church. Be self-controlled. That's
1: a big task.
0: All right. Yeah, well, why would you say that? Self-control.
3: I mean, when you're young, you're full of vinegar.
1: and
0: yeah.
3: so it's yeah, it's hard <laughs> to stay right on the rim.
0: Right, so you got, what, what do they call it? Impulse management, you know, taking care of those impulses, all right? Not be, right, so what, what does this imply is a, is a common, common failure mode for young men? You know, how do young men do badly? Temptation immorality. So sexual immorality, Yeah. you know, they are, they're not self-controlled sexually. Um, is that all though? Is it just sex?
1: Lack of
4: experience.
0: They lack experience. Yeah.
4: Controlling the tongue.
0: Okay. Controlling controlling the tongue. So what is self-control? How do we understand that? Self-control.
1: Making better decisions than some others.
0: Okay. Very good. Making good, wise decisions. Self-control. I think it's
1: understanding that you have the ability to be stupid and then choosing not to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can have a really stupid day today. Lord, help me not to have a stupid day. Go ahead. It's becoming
6: me that uh, self control is uh, something that self cannot do by themselves.
0: Yeah, it's, it's
6: something you know, outside of specifically God working in is what's needed. Otherwise, I think self control is following the problem.
0: Well, it seems like you, you have in mind that self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit listed, right? Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So, how do we understand the harmony between self-control, not spirit control, self-control, and that being a fruit of the Spirit? What is the Spirit's role to help the self control the self? I think you would be
7: sure that you're more controlled by the Holy Spirit than you are by your own spirit. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, what would Jesus do? I mean, you remember the little slogan everybody used to wear, the initials, you know. Uh, what would Jesus do us? You remember that?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
7: Romans 8.13.
0: I was going right there myself, brother. So what does it say, Alan? Romans 8.13. According
7: to the flesh you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the needs of the flesh you will live.
0: Absolutely, and I'll add the next verse because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So there's a mystery of cooperation, a collaboration between the Christian and the Holy Spirit. If you, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. So you have a responsibility to do it. That's why it's called self-control. You have to control yourself, but the Spirit empowers that.
4: Yeah, and I think... The whole process of growing maturity informs all that, and, and some some of it is uh, uh, growing in the understanding that I've got enemies: the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right. My flesh is a very real enemy.
0: What does that mean? The flesh. What is the flesh? The tendencies
4: of the heart to the heart is the people all things, and desperately Christ. understanding that that's true of my own heart, right. and recognizing I need to take steps to to fight against that, to put that to death. Right. To recognize that if I just go do uh, whatever I feel like doing, right. uh, whenever I feel like doing it, I'm going to give myself a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, in the past I've defi- defined the flesh, so to speak. It's called flesh because it's tied to somewhat to bodily functions. You know, like the word became flesh. Um, that doesn't mean the word Jesus became sinful, it means he took on a human body. But the reason the Bible uses this language of flesh is there are normal bodily drives and desires that are tied in the biochemistry that the sin nature pushes beyond boundaries so that eating becomes gluttony, drinking becomes drunk, drunkenness, um, a se- sexual drive which is designed by God for the one man, one woman, one flesh union called marriage it's a good thing, um, goes into sexual immorality, which is non-marital sexual satisfaction. That's what the flesh does. Um, you know, you want to be esteemed, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, you want to be thought well of, but then you know, the flesh pushes that beyond boundaries. So that that's you drive for that, and you're looking for that all the time, and you become that way. You, you want to acquire good things, nothing wrong with that, but beca- you become covetous, you can become greedy. So that's what the flesh does. It takes normal drives and pushes them beyond boundaries that God's law sets up. That's what the flesh does. Self-control says, I'm not going there. I'm not going to go beyond that boundary. I'm going to stay within the boundaries God set for all of these drives and desires. I'm going to eat in moderation, drink in moderation, live in moderation. I'm going to be sexually pure within my marriage. If I'm single, I'm going to be completely abstinent. Reminds me of Elizabeth Elliot <laughs> was asked by a publisher to write a book called "Sex and the Single Christian." She said, "That'd be great. It'd be the shortest book in history." <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah, it's like, all right, there we go. That was easy, you know. So um, you know, it's just yeah, you're single, you're not sexually active. Uh, how does that sound, by the way, to our culture? This is crazy. <laughs> Absolute insanity. It's like, are you out of your mind? Like, there's something wrong with you. But that's the self controlled life. That's the life that the young men are being, are going to be taught here. That's implied in teach the young men to be self controlled.
3: Also, it says in Galatians, it says that it's a God given ability to submit our will to his leading his life in our lives.
0: That's good. Good. So, what Alan, what you're saying, you know, I, I agree with that. It's a mysterious cooperation or collaboration between the regenerate christian born again christian and the indwelling holy spirit as he leads you to warfare that's what the leading of the spirit there is to is to kill to kill the deeds of the flesh mortify and so the holy spirit leads you and you put it to death but in the end it's your job to do it you have to mur- you have to kill those things it, you by the spirit have to do that if you fail don't you don't blame the spirit Boy, the spirit was not on his game today on mortification. That's not ever gonna happen. It's because you didn't do it. And that's why it's called self-control. So, yeah, one more thing. Go ahead.
4: You see uh, self-control is uh, heavily weighted towards uh, the ability to say no to things that are stepped beyond or is part of it uh, the commitment to say yes to sure. things you ought to be. but
0: flesh militates against. well it's in, it's interesting you put it that way so look later in the in the same chapter someone if you would read uh, again we've already heard it but 2 11 um, um, and uh, so 13 11 through 32 11 through 13.
1: For the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, you can stop there. You can see how that would be central to the lessons to the young men. Uh, You're going to tell the young men that the grace of God has appeared that teaches you to say no to ungodliness and live a self-controlled life and an upright life. So that's it, it's only by the grace of God, as Alan was saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't do it alone, as Jim was saying, you can't do it alone, you've got to do it, but this is what you've got to teach these young men. We want the young men to be self-controlled men. Go ahead, Alan. One
7: of my close friends is a retired ophthalmologist, and now he's he's an AA instructor, and one of the things that he teaches in AA that would be contrary to what we're talking about is They actually, if you have other addictions besides alcohol, smoking, gambling, whatever, they discourage you from trying to mortify those at the same time because it becomes more difficult. They they, they refer to it as, you know, you will need that dopamine spill that you get from your alcohol, so they actually encourage you sometimes to continue to do your addictions, uh, they allow smoking during the meetings, apparently. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, no, it's not,
0: it's not by the so, Spirit. Yeah, no, I'm not thinking so. You know, and, and that's the whole thing. I'm teaching on my book, Infinite Journey, and I, it gives a, a basically panoramic overview of, of Christian maturity in all respects. And I summarize it in a series of statements, over 30 statements. And what I say is, as much as it may feel like a burden, you've got to do all these. You're not exempt from any of them. Holy Spirit's not saying, tell you what, we're going to work on numbers 1, 6, 7, 9, and 11 this week. It just doesn't work that way. It's comprehensive <laughs> obedience. And why is that? Because sin is poison whenever you take it in. If, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if you're breaking God's word, it's poison. Don't do it. And so we, are, we have the ability to handle it. But that's interesting. So I guess then some of these AA meetings must be, I don't know, I'm imagining smoke-filled rooms. Is that it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right <laughs> but we digress at any rate so yeah uh, comprehensive obedience all right now what's going on in verse 7 who is Paul talking to and what does he tell him to do Two seven he's talking, to the older men, they, oh. Titus. he's talking to Titus now the, the young men are still in view but what does he tell Titus that he needs to do be an example set an example for these young men and for the whole church. So why is that so vital in pastoral ministry, the role modeling aspect, the example? Let me read it, what it says, 7 and 8. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad they can say about us. All right, so what is the, what is the, uh, what is the function of role modeling in pastoral ministry? role role model
2: similar to the father-son relationship
0: okay how so
2: We're, that's our our calling is to to be that godly role model for them to yeah. to show them how to interact with women to with other people with the world with their work
0: yeah i mean that uh, brings me in my mind to hebrews 13 um 7. so listen to hebrews thirteen seven, which says remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And that's after the Hebrews 11 chapters that great faith chapters, like that's what faith looks like, do that, imitate that. So imitate their faith. So more, more on role modeling, why it's so important in the Christian life, role modeling.
6: Just showing that humans can achieve this very high standard.
0: Okay.
5: We have a disdain for hypocrisy. I mean, we, we don't mind someone who talks the talk, but if you don't walk the walk, it sort of discredits your
0: speech. Yeah, so Titus himself would be discredited if he's not living up to this. So if Titus can't take instructions from the Apostle Paul and then live them out, his whole ministry there in Crete is going to be torpedoed. So he's got to be able to say what Paul says often. Which is follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It
7: takes so little to disqualify you too. It's not like a balance like we, we can let this slide or you know he's he's truthful most of the time, so we're going to let that slide. It really takes very very little to disqualify you when you're trying to set that level of an example.
0: Yeah. So
2: really
7: low tolerance
0: for 5%. Yeah. Well, we don't want it. We want we want reality, but at the same time, we also know. That we can't expect perfection in our elders, because then you'd have no elders. Um, you know, James even says we all stumble in many ways. If anyone's not at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man. You're not going to find any perfect people, but there are levels of sin and there are levels of hypocrisy that should not be tolerated. So there's there's just that's why there's this qualifying verses in Titus one and First Timothy three for elders. You know, they actually are living out the Christian life. Not perfectly, but they're living it out as role models. Now, the example... Yeah, go ahead, Ted. 7 James
2: 3, 1 that issue of the higher standard. Go ahead. Not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that shall occur
0: judgment. So Therefore, I should quit, like right now. <laughs> the problem is the parable of the five talents, the two talent, and you remember the one talent guy? Who is the one talent guy? He buried buried the talent. Why? He was fearful of the master. He's fearful of the master because he was strict and all that. Did he get well-received by the master? No, he got sent to hell. You you look at it, it's like, throw him outside in the darkness. (coughs) So I'm kind of between the rock and the hard place on, on the one talent and then the let not many presume to be teachers. The idea is not that teachers like me shouldn't teach because it openly says in Romans, if your gift is teaching, you need to teach. You have no option. It's just understand you're going to be under a higher standard. And you're going to have to give that account. And I do understand that. It's a burden. But there's no alternative. The alternative is not don't teach. But
2: there's a the constructive side to that burden. It drives you closer. to depend upon the Holy Spirit.
3: You depend upon the Lord.
0: Yeah. It is a high calling, and, but the church needs it. I mean, because imagine if people read James 3.1 and say, you have no teachers left. You have not, and then that's that's not going to serve anyone well at all. But we got this idea of role model, and here we've got this Greek word which has come across, we've come across before, um, which is tupos. And the tupos is is a pattern, an example. Two seven gives the word example, but the Greek word is tupos, and that comes from the uh, as I've told told you folks before, the striking of a coin. It's the it's the pattern on the coin. You remember that. And the idea was that you've got this, uh, this two-post, which is really hardened metal, like we would imagine in our day and age, stainless steel, something super, super, even harder than that. And then the precious metals are always soft. And there's a tremendous force when the coin is struck, and it leaves an imprint in the softer metal, uh, from which we get the outline of Caesar's face, let's say, or the inscription in the coin, heads and tails. You know that kind of thing. And so the idea is the essential, as I've said before, smushability of the coin. It has to be smushable, all right? Uh, You have to yield to the pattern, and you have to allow your mind to be shaped to the pattern. It's very bad for the pattern to be shaped by the coin. That would not do at all. So the pattern's not going to be made out of wax or out of wood, all right? It's got to be made out of something really hard. It's not going anywhere. So there's the two patterns in discipleship, the pattern of sound doctrine, Second uh, Timothy 1.13, uh, sound doctrine, and then the pattern of godly living, uh, role modeling, and that's Philippians 3.17. Two posts used in both of those places also in this, in this verse here. The idea is there is a standard Christianity and we all need to s- submit to it. We all need to be formed to it. Does that make sense? We're not trying to reinvent Christianity in every generation, not at all. We're trying to line up with this standard that never changes. And so good pastors teach the standard and live up to the standard. People who resist being smushed by the, by the two posts are stiff-necked or hard-hearted, does that make sense? They're not yielding, they're fighting it. And they're not being changed by it, does that make sense? So the idea is uh, moldability etc. So Titus is giving his life as a role model, specifically here to the young men. He's a self-controlled man. And we already saw, didn't we, as we talked, and I think, Rick, you brought this up when we first started Titus, of how many of the qualifications for elder had to do with self-control. Remember that? Talking about self-control with drink, with, with relationships, he's a self-controlled, he's not given to violence, not given to uh, temper, flair, fl- flaring up temper, etc. So he's got to set an example. In everything, set them example by doing what is good. What does that mean, in everything?
6: You have to be consistent. You can't be going in everything. You're there.
4: You have to do everything, walk the walk.
0: Yeah. Good at marriage, bad at parenting. It's not going to work, you know? <laughs> I'm really exemplary at marriage, but I'm a really bad father. I mean, he can't be an elder because his children have to obey him with proper respect. So he's got it. there's a comprehensive life being presented. So it's a challenge. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And then it says, in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Someone with the ESV read that uh, translation. So the end of seven into eight.
6: Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned.
0: All right, so let's zero in on that. In your teaching... Show integrity. What does that mean? Integrity. Since both ESV and IV have it, let's stick with the word integrity. What does that mean? Trustworthiness? Yes. Okay. Anyone else on integrity? If you said that a, a man is a man of integrity, what does that mean?
4: It means he says one thing and so he lives what he says. He lives what he
0: so he is in private what he says in public? Yes. So it's from the integer, like one, he's one person all the time. He's the same person all the time. So that's what integrity means. But specifically in his teaching, he's a man of integrity. I think that would mean he teaches the same thing no matter what the audience. He's not, a ti- he's not a people pleaser. He's not tickling their ears. Do you know how people could shape the message based on the feedback loop of the audience? That would not be a teacher with integrity. So any other thoughts on integrity? Yeah, Ryan. Ryan.
4: And I remember my dad saying, growing up he thing he he said, I always do what you say you do. If you're going to do it, call him in and tell him you ain't going
0: to do it. <laughs> All right. If you're not going to do it, be honest that you're not going to do it. That's, yeah, be a man of integrity. Anyone else on this idea of teaching with integrity? In your, in your teaching, make certain that you are characterized by integrity.
2: I think it's unchanging and that it stays the same.
0: Okay. What does he mean by seriousness in your teaching? seriousness your turn yeah sorry Linda. i think, I think the uh, quality is not a good word i guess to describe but teaching the
7: whole truth mm-hmm. instead of just the surface okay uh, depth of of teaching the scriptures the whole scripture
4: okay is that the uh,
3: ESV dignity
0: Dignity is that what you have? Yeah, yeah, dignity is. Integrity, dignity, dignity. All right.
3: He had both. Of, Brother June of, had both.
0: Of. Dignity. Okay. Serious. Seriousness is the third one.
6: No, I've got
0: dignity. All right, dignity. All right. All right. Well, let's stick with let's stick with the NIV for a minute. Um, what what does it mean for a teacher to teach with seriousness? Like, is a serious man? Suppose somebody's a serious man. What does that mean? Part of
6: that would be um, being well prepared, but. It's implied that the, the source of what they're going to teach is correct. In other words, it's dependable.
4: It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's right. It's true. Okay. I think it also yes. means there's nothing tri- trivial about this book. It's the opposite of, being, of treating something in a trivial manner. Okay,
0: so what is the goal of this book? What are we dealing with here? What is the topic? Oh, and death, it's heaven it's, and hell. It's eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus was called a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. I do not think it's an accident that we have no examples of Jesus' sense of humor. And frankly, you don't have any example of God's either. I've studied this, and I, I, I hear again and again people say, God has a sense of humor. It's like, well, if he does, that's not one of the main lessons of the Bible. It's not. It's not one of Jesus' central goals was today that people know I have a sense of humor. I don't get that sense with Jesus. Instead, we, he's called a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Why? Because we're dealing with heaven or hell. We're dealing with, and it reminds me of um, Richard Baxter. It was said of him. He said, I spoke as a dying man to dying men and as if, as if never to preach again.
1: It's urgent. It's, it's an urgency of a message. I believe that's
0: what he's talking about. Yeah, so Baxter there is saying, I'm imagining there's someone out in the congregation that's unconverted, and this will be the last time they hear me preach. What would I say to him? You can't be a stand-up comedian in that setting. You can't transition from five minutes of entertainment to then something super serious. I think that's what Titus, what, what Paul's telling Titus here. Make certain that you're characterized by seriousness in your life, in your message. That what John uh, Piper calls blood earnestness. A sense that we're dealing with heaven or hell with eternal issues. Now again, it doesn't mean that there's not a place for humor, but I would say in 25 years of preaching plus, I can't remember more than five times that I went into the pulpit knowing that something that I had written on my outline was going to be funny. It didn't happen often. I'm not saying I'm against it or I think it's some great sin. It just isn't a goal. Does that make sense? I'm not going with a, it's not a goal. So there are moments that have come that hit me funny and it seemed to fit uh, and all that. It just wasn't a goal. So again, I don't think we're saying that the individual has no humor at all. But it's not, one of his main attributes that's not what would characterize his doctrine is you know is frivolousness or or entertainment
2: but very different from liars, lazy gluttons people who are lazy
0: for sure for sure absolutely um so and then soundness of speech is the third one jim in the esv i think is that what you had it seemed seemed like it was is that right soundness sound and sound speech yeah because again it's going to be from that word from which we get the english word hygiene So healthy speech or sound speech means lines up with health, uh, what is true, I would say true. So soundness of speech, it means the things you say are trustworthy and, you know, they're true.
3: um, What I look at is uh, your first, the main thing is being honest and showing a consistent compromising adherence to strong moral and ethical principles and values.
0: Where did you get that from? Um, I would do that. Okay. Well, it looked like you were reading it. You know, maybe it was on the study study page, the study Bible. Those those are very helpful. Um, Yeah, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Um, It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Um, So this past Sunday, I made a statement that I had to walk back. Someone um, emailed me about it and said, how do you know that the upper room of the Last Supper was the same as the upper room of the day of Pentecost? I'd already always assumed that it was, but I said that it was, and somebody Said, "Can you prove it?" And uh, I was not able to uh, prove it. So, um, you know, I'm not going to do a public retraction, though, on Sunday. Sorry, um, that's not coming. Um, but it just shows the need. We have a very careful listening congregation, you know, and I'm grateful for that. And I, I think that's that's good. That's good. So it just shows me: be careful what you say. People are listening out there, and make sure that you can back it up. Reminds me very much. <laughs> this is. <laughs> reminds me of a moment in my seminary. I was writing a a paper on on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And I wrote that Paul had been knocked uh, from his horse. And uh, my Greek professor circled the word horse and said, if you can find me a horse in any of the accounts of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, I'll give you extra credit. (laughs) So I went back and read Acts 9, Acts 24, Acts 26, no horse. There wasn't a horse in any of them. I just remember my child Bible showed Paul being knocked from his horse and I had that literal picture in my mind and I thought it was in the Bible and it wasn't. And neither is Mary wearing a blue cloak and riding a donkey into Bethlehem. That's not anywhere in the Bible. I know that's in all the Christmas cards but you're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. All right? You just got to be careful. The ideas you have and you think they're in the Bible, and they're not. You got to be careful.
5: Next, you're gonna be telling us the drummer boy doesn't
0: exist. <laughs> uh, now you're treading on toes here, Chris. Are you telling me he doesn't exist? What about what about claymation animals? Do they exist? I want to know all right, if that actually happened. All
6: right.
0: About the horse? Yeah, that was. Well, that was because of a painful moment. I was I was certain. That there was a horse in the account all right yeah.
1: Yeah, it was just
0: <laughs> well here's the thing it's the second time this has happened to me in a month the earlier was a, a Ligonier article I wrote in which uh, I said that God's uh, deliberation was uh, was totally internal and this this lawyer wrote me um, a female lawyer wrote me saying that she was not certain from the text wondered if it was in the Hebrew you know that that god's um statement shall i hide from abraham what i'm about to do was internal internal deliberation um and it just shows you got to be careful Uh, if you're going to make assertions make sure they're true um and i think you know if if you're if you're speculating you think i think that the upper room of the last supper was most likely the same as the upper room of pentecost that it may be but to say it was that's gone too far and so you just got to be careful but aside from those details, I think in a larger sense, you are unfolding or, de- or describing a system of truth called theology. You're building a theology by sound exegesis. Just make sure that, that your construction is well done. So if you look at, uh, someone read uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, uh, which is a key text on this. Second, Second Tim, Timothy two fifteen.
4: Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker that has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of
0: truth. All right. So, d- do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a a worker or workman who does not need to be ashamed. Uh, orthotome is rightly dividing, cutting straight the word of truth. Uh, that is inscribed in Greek over one of the doorways at Southern Seminary. All right. And it speaks of craftsmanship in the teaching of the word. It's like a craftsmanship area. So you could imagine uh, somebody who's a builder does a poor job and something gets exposed and he is ashamed for the work that he did. So for me, as a teacher, it has to do with a body or a system of doctrine. Does that make sense? It's a system of doctrine. Make sure I've done good work. It's, it's good, sound construction principles. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to never make a mistake. But the building that you're building is sound. It's a good building. It's, it's sound structurally. Yeah, that's, I think that's a good word. All right, so in your teaching show, integrity, um, you, say you have the word dignity, so let's go with that word. What does that word mean to you, dignity?
1: You conduct yourself in, a, in an honorable manner.
0: All right, so especially in your speech patterns. So that would eliminate coarse je- joking. Uh, foul speech other verbal patterns that cause people to lose respect for you you know things like that all right that cannot and soundness of speech that cannot be uh, condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed uh, because of their slander basically they have nothing bad they can say about they they're going to be ashamed all right a very clear example of this of this are the men who brought the false accusation against Daniel in Daniel 6 remember that they were jealous of him because Darius the Mead had put him in charge of position of power so they determined to destroy him politically right and they they scoured through his private life and through his public life and they came up with nothing I mean they came up with nothing remember what they said we will never find anything against this man unless it has something to do with his religion remember that because he wasn't negligent he wasn't corrupt he was very skillful at what he did. He was an outstanding administrator. Outstanding. So much so that Darius wanted to basically put him over the entire kingdom under his own authority. So he was incredible. Imagine your enemies scouring your private life, scouring every aspect of your life, public and private, and they can't find anything that they can say against you. Now how, was it, how was Daniel vindicated in reference to those false accusers? Do you not feel that that was vindication? That was pure vindication right there.
2: And their families.
0: And their families get thrown in there too, so that's a different matter. That's just how they did. Those were tough men back then. At any rate, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they're coming up empty. They don't have anything they can say against you. So that's a high standard here, isn't it? And that's what's being charged for Titus, so that um, they can never say anything bad about us. Any final statement about the young men and Titus as a role model?
5: That word dignity seems to, when I looked up the definition, it says uh, being worthy of honor or respect, and it kind of took me back up a few verses to teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect. So it seems like it's tied together.
3: Yeah, honor, honor
7: too
0: yeah and remember i said to you men a number of years ago or sorry weeks ago i didn't say say, um, a number of weeks ago that churches are responsible for the kind of leadership they put up with the churches are responsible of kind of leaders they have
2: right
0: one of the things i'm hoping to do by teaching carefully through titus is to make certain that my replacement here in this role will be somebody who meets these qualifications. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that the church is ready to filter out candidates that are not going to do this. Filter out the, the entertainment types, the ego types, filtering out. You're looking for someone that will do this consistently. That's what you need. Does that make sense? So getting ready to replace myself. Um, I'm not planning on going anywhere anytime soon, but who knows what the Lord's plans are for me, physically, I mean, especially. But the fact is, the church—if you—if you teach the church properly—they will do a good job in choosing leaders, their own leaders. They'll—they'll um, they'll make sure that they meet these qualifications. All right, let's keep going. Um, verse nine and ten. Someone read that. Um, the section on slaves.
2: But the last thing I'd say: on this is nothing bad they can say about us that, that it's a reflection of Paul as well. Um, it's just.
0: Uh, yeah. The you, and then at the end he said us. Could—it's hard to know exactly who he means by us. It could be Paul's entourage as mentors for Timothy because he sent Timothy. The reason I left you in Crete, dot dot dot. But the us could be just generally Christians, like the Christian church. Either way is okay. Very good, Jim. All right, someone nine, nine, and ten. Someone read that again.
1: Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive.
0: Okay, so here's a question that's posed, especially uh, it's posed, been posed recently in, in the uh, era, recent era of um, of racial tension sometimes in America, uh, racial reconciliation, um, justice concerns, et cetera. And in general, the apologetic issue with the Bible is the Bible actually the word of God and they bring up embarrassing aspects like the dietary regulations, not allowed to eat shrimp or lobster because it's shellfish, this kind of thing. So critics will bring up flaws in the Bible, so they believe. Slavery is one of the main ones they'll bring up. So here's the question I wrote in my question sheet because I've had to face it myself. Why do you think the New Testament, Paul in particular, Seeks generally to manage slavery as an institution rather than abolish it. First yeah, go ahead. An
5: important example too is you know, we interact with God on a lot of different levels. He's a father, we're his sons, and he's um bridegroom, we're bride, he is master and we are his bond servants. And we would not have a paradigm to understand that if we didn't have the example of slavery. So yeah, there may be some negative aspects to it, um, but there's a, there's a applicable lesson for us that's very valuable. All
0: right, so that's a great answer, Chris. So if I could extract you know the answer to my question based on what you said, which I love, I think it's a good good answer, I think it's the best answer. The reason that the Bible is not openly abolitionist is that the master-slave relationship is a permanent feature of our relationship with God. It's not the only feature, but it is a permanent feature. The reason we know that is in Revelation 22, um, and uh, it says in verse uh, 4, uh, 3 uh, yeah, verse 3 and 4 um, I'll just read beginning of uh, verse 1 Revelation 22 1 then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And here it is. His servants will serve him. So The Greek word there, douloi, means slaves. Usually translated servants because we like that word better than slaves. All right? But that's in Revelation 22. So when I just said a moment ago that the master-slave relationship is a permanent feature of our relationship with God, though it's not the only one because in the same chapters, there's the bride and bridegroom analogy as well. The New Jerusalem is let down like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Um, so servant or slave is a permanent, a permanent aspect of our relationship with God. All right. What other answers can you give? Why, is the, why does the New Testament not abolish slavery, clearly overtly abolish, abolish slavery?
1: Well, it could be a, a preparation for us so that if we ended up in slavery, uh, which you know, through persecution or, or whatever, you know, no matter where we are in the pecking order of, of society, that we, uh, we live in such a way because at the end of it, it says to make God.
0: Yeah, I think fundamental to the, the problem we have Is we have a conception of personal autonomy that's intrinsic to our national identity freedom that is unique in world history the ability to just be a free agent walking wherever you want to go on God's green earth and being wherever you want to go was not the way most societies have been most societies you belonged to someone like do you remember (laughs) this is interesting talk about something that would be incredibly offensive to feminists but do you remember the first question that Boaz asked concerning Ruth remember she's gleaning in, the, in his fields and he asked this question whose young woman is that what does the word whose mean in the sentence she's a possession. she belongs to someone who, who does she belong to it's like whoa alright that why would that be offensive to the modern feminist whose young woman <laughs> <Not independent. laughs> somebody's daughter or somebody's wife right you know <laughs> but that's society right we're in connection and we're not just like loose free agent types and, and we have a conception now I'm not saying that the American conception of personal autonomy and the right to go wherever you want to go you know in the uncharted wilds is not a good thing or what is it Thomas Jefferson said an inalienable right to do whatever you want with your time Um, I don't think God thinks of it that way. Do we have an inalienable right to do whatever we want with our time, energy, money? No, it all belongs to him. So we should think like slaves vertically. I covered this with Titus 1.1. Remember that? Where we started, Paul, a slave of God. So that was hard for us to take, is that idea of autonomy and freedom. But the, the fact is that we have conceptions, basic conceptions of personal freedom that may not harmonize with a relationship with God. They don't harmonize well. All right, but that's not all we can say either. What effect has evangelical truth had on chattel slavery historically? What did, what effect has Christianity had on chattel slavery?
6: It was instrumental it uh, in its uh, being abolished.
0: Is it abolished? Not really. Is I'm legal sure. slavery abolished in the world? Legal. Slavery. Legal, not illegal. I'm not talking about sex trafficking. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, is it legal to enslave another person? It isn't, friends. It isn't. Just look it up. There is no legal slavery anywhere in the world. Nowhere. All right? It is illegal to own other people. How, and what, how did that happen? Because Islam uh, said it? No. The, the Muslim nations were the last. They were the last. What effect had evangelicals like Whitfield and Wesley and lady huntington and william wilberforce and all that what effect did they have on chattel slavery they destroyed it all right and how do they do it because of christian principles well let's take the golden rule all right how would you say the golden rule do to others what you'd have them do to you has the effect of destroying slavery
7: nobody wants to be a slave
0: do you want to be a slave then don't enslave that's a basic concept that's how it works so these are not easy issues the fact that slavery is managed as an institution rather than abolished is true. The fact that douloi is mentioned in Revelation 22.3 is true. Harmonizing all these things is not easy to do. Go ahead.
7: The, uh, um,
4: the, the preface to the ESV has a uh, paragraph discussing how they, where and why they translate doulois as slave or servant. Uh, it's just. Uh, I could read
0: it. Or we have three minutes left in the Bible study, so summarize it quickly. You know, don't read it. Just <laughs> can't? All right. Well, they have their linguistic reasons. I would
4: just suggest reading that sometime.
0: Yeah, they have their linguistic reasons, and I'm sure they have good reasons for it. Translation is challenging. It's hard to get it across. So I would say that's some, some of the reason why. What are, just as, as you think about Ephesians, Colossians, and here, here in Titus, how does the New Testament manage slavery. What, what instructions does it give to masters and slaves?
6: Well, masters are not, are not to be harsh. Or they're not to be overbearing with their slaves. They're to treat them uh, with dignity and humanity and kindness, which
0: we would hope. Does that line up with history at all? Not in the least. <laughs> so you can't even threaten them. Do not threaten them. Because you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no favoritism with him. So it manages it very, very carefully. Real quickly, we're almost out of time. We'll circle back on this, God willing, next time. But why are there no instructions here, do you think, for masters? I mean in Titus. Titus 2. There's no instructions for masters
7: here.
0: Well, there are instructions in Ephesians and Colossians for masters. So why are there no instructions in Titus?
6: Titus is dealing with uh, somebody who's um, from over other people, and there are many more of the than there are Titus's in his, uh, the, the about, you know, who he's appointed.
0: Could it say something about the constituency of the local church there in Crete? If there was no need to give any instructions to masters, what, it, what would that tell you? There, no ma- there weren't any. Now, there are some in Ephesians and there are some in Colossians, but he doesn't give any instruction. And let's be honest a huge percentage of the first century church were slaves. Huge percentage. And Paul addresses this, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not many of you were wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. What does that mean? Probably a lot of them were slaves. Um, And Paul addresses slavery in 1 Corinthians 7, telling them if. You know, if you're a slave, don't let it bother you, he basically says. But if you can get your freedom, get it. You know, he's talked about that. All right, any final thoughts before we finish?
4: Well, you've got the book of Philemon, which is uh, yeah. not, uh, pertinent to the question as well. All
0: right, and what does he say in Philemon? He's speaking to a master. He's
4: speaking to a master, and he encourages him to, uh, to
0: he wants him to be free. That, that's putting it gently. Yeah. Would you say he encourages him to set Onesimus free, or...? He lays the maximum guilt trip. You want know to talk about It's like not to mention you owe me your like eternal existence. <laughs> you know, it, it just, I won't mention that. That's a pure rhetorical technique when you not to mention something. You know, it's like when you mention something by not mentioning it. But, you know, he's saying, look, you owe me your life and I know that you're going to do what I ask. I'm going to come visit you. We'll see how that goes. All right. <laughs> so he really wants him to set him free. It's really quite remarkable. So anyway, Greg, would you close in prayer, brother?
4: Father we uh, uh, thank you for this book of Titus and uh word. A <laughs> uh, great many of us in this room are, are all clearly in the older men. And, uh, and this book addresses all of us who are whatever category we're in. And we, we pray that you would help us to take these things to, to heart, to live uh, sober and upright and dignified and And uh, lives of integrity, and pray that that, the the spheres in which you have given us uh, uh, responsibilities to teach in our homes, whether it be in our homes or other places, that you help us to uh, uh, teach what uh, records a sound doctrine. We praise you that you are our God, and we thank you uh, for the the richness of the scriptures, and
1: uh, we pray all these things. Amen.